Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 4 of They Walk Among Us. A podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 6, Episodes 1, 2 and 3 for the previous parts of this five-part case. The fifth and final instalment will be available next week. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. chat with the Salvation Army bloke in here the other day, how people become killers, right? And this all started from home. Yeah, well, I wanted to be that. I admired all he stood for. He was my god, like, he was tall, big, big man, like, could handle himself, no problem. Mother was very old-fashioned, in her ways. I mean, like, if you had a girlfriend, girlfriend was strictly out till you were 21. Not 16, like 21, you had a girlfriend and thought of sex and things like that. Where dad was different altogether. You know, if it's on offer, take it, so. Born 
towards the end of September 1941 to parents Walter and Daisy West. Frederick Walter Stephen West was raised in the rural village of Much Markle, surrounded by green rolling fields on the border of the tranquil South Herefordshire countryside. Both his parents were seen as pleasant, hard-working people. From the outside in, Fred's life was idyllic. Time spent playing in the fields where his father made ends meet. Walter West often went to work with his children in tow. They were expected to pay their way. This no doubt instilled a solid work ethic as they helped with the harvest and caught animals to eat. Walter's son Fred was the eldest of six and obtained his education at the local village school. He seemed cheerful, and the phrase, he was such a nice boy, was said more than once when describing him. The family moved between several properties throughout the area. Their living conditions were cramped, and privacy was a luxury the family could ill afford. They may not have had much, at least in a monetary sense, but by all accounts, they appeared to be content with their lot. Many years later, the daughter of Walter West's employer was interviewed by reporter Will Bennett. When discussing young Fred West, she said, He was just an ordinary little lad. Nothing that would stand out in your mind. He was small with a crop of curly hair and was very like his mother to look at. He was a cheerful lad. Fred's time at school was not without incident. He was the focus of bullies and their taunts, although this did not seem to affect his chirpy disposition. Fred did not have many childhood friends, Instead, he spent most of his time with his siblings. His mother was highly protective of him. It appeared to many of Fred's schoolmates that he could very well be his mother's favourite. She frequently chastised her son's teachers for giving Fred a hard time if he was struggling with his homework. He was characterised as not exceptionally bright. Fred left school without taking exams. He was semi-literate. Initially, he took in his father's footsteps working as a farm labourer. In his spare time, his interests involved motorcycle maintenance. Slowly, Fred realised that farming was not a career he wanted to pursue. So along with his brother John they found work on the building sites around Gloucestershire. Shortly before he turned 18, Fred was involved in a serious accident on his motorbike, breaking his leg and shattering his skull, which would need to be held together with a steel plate. He was in a coma for a week, and he could not walk unaided for some time. As he recovered, Fred sold his bike and quickly decided that riding was not for him. 
Coincidentally, he also fell down some stairs several years later and was again knocked unconscious for 24 hours. This was a result of him trying to grope a woman who punched him in the face. This caused Fred to fall backwards. His interactions with the opposite sex often involved him objectifying them. He was frequently inappropriate both verbally and physically. Theories suggest that perhaps these two accidents caused a dark side to emerge, leaving him with a permanently changed personality. Those people that knew Fred said he frequently flew off the handle and seemed to have a much shorter fuse than he did before. But things are rarely that simple. Could Fred's dark side have always been there? It most certainly appeared during his early years of adulthood. He was arrested and charged with rape. His victim was just 13 years old. Quite unbelievably, when Fred was taken into custody, he surprisingly did not see a problem with his actions. The victim's identity has since been made public, However, given her age at the time of the crime, it will not be mentioned on this podcast. She was known to Fred's parents. The case went to court, although as soon as it was the young victim's turn to speak, she could go no further, and the prosecution against Fred West fell apart. Unsurprisingly, this caused a great deal of tension in the family. Fred's mother was distraught and did not want her son living under their roof for another night. He moved out to live with a relative. Much has been written about Fred West and why he did the things he did. It has been suggested that his father was somehow involved in the violent abuse of his own children. Fred claimed that he was ordered to kill animals. And startlingly, he was sexually abused by his mother and committed bestiality with his father. But the source of this information predominantly comes from Fred himself, so the validity of these claims cannot be verified. Can Fred West be trusted to chronicle his own life honestly and accurately? His brother Doug would later dispute Fred's claims and said he and his siblings were never abused. Doug West told the documentary crew for UK television network Channel 5 that Fred had lied. He said, I can sit here and tell you that it's not true. None of us was ever abused in any way by anybody. As far as mum and Fred and dad and animals, that was just fantasy by somebody. In his early 20s, While working as a builder with his brother John, 
Fred West reconnected with a former girlfriend, Catherine Costello. Hailing from Scotland, Catherine Orrin, a name she was more commonly known by, worked as a waitress in Ledbury. Near Much Markle, the Herefordshire market town was the place where Fred and his work friends often hung out drinking. Rena Costello had a difficult youth. Born in April 1944, she had four sisters. But after her parents split up, the children were put into care. Rena was sent to finishing school during her teenage years and ended up doing a brief stint in a borstal for burglary. When she became pregnant, she was disowned by her family. The father of her first child does not appear to be a matter of public record, other than he was a bus driver. Rena was living in Herefordshire with relatives when she found work in Ledbury. She had previously been in a brief relationship with Fred West, However, when she was 18, she again found herself in his company. Outwardly, the two seemed happy. After they were married at a registry office in Ledbury during November 1962, Fred and Rena decided to move to Scotland. Few of Fred's friends and family even knew that the ceremony had happened, other than Fred's brother John, who was the best man. It was clear Fred was impulsive. His brother Doug would later say of his sibling, If he decided to do it, he just went ahead and did it. He was a bit secretive. He would go and do things without thinking. And that was that. And I mean, Rena always looked after me. Don't get me wrong, I mean, she never was unkind to me in any way. Well, the allegation is that you killed her, isn't it? Yeah. Rena's first daughter, Charmaine Carol Mary West, was born towards the end of March 1963. Charmaine's biological father was a person of Asian descent so the couple agreed to tell people Charmaine was adopted. Starting a new chapter of their marriage in Glasgow, Fred found work where he could, including behind the wheel of a lorry and a job selling ice cream. The following year in 1964, Anna Marie West was born. She would go on to change her name to Anne Marie. At the time, she appeared to be the apple of her father's eye, if the accounts provided by friends are accurate. Rena did her best to raise her children, but they no longer lived in a happy home. Fred was a harsh disciplinarian, and his numerous affairs were hard to ignore. Rena took solace in the arms of another man, Someone who, on more than one occasion, struck Fred if he knew Fred was hurting Rena. Fred would frequently attack his wife, although he seemed to withdraw if challenged by another man. 
1965, Fred West was involved in another accident. He was behind the wheel of his ice cream van when he struck a four-year-old boy. The child died due to their injuries. Fred was deemed not responsible by the authorities, although tongues began to wag and he was worried about the growing sense of animosity towards him. Fred was concerned for his life. This spurred him to leave his home in Scotland and head back to England, close to where he had grown up. While Rena was in Glasgow, she had seen a different side to Fred emerge. When she did not want to be intimate, her husband threatened her, and if she continued to refuse his advances, he would beat her. However, perhaps with the promise of a new larger home for the family and her husband back in his home country, Rena thought that Fred's behaviour might change for the better. Along with a couple, two of Rena's young friends also decided to join them in England. They all hoped for a fresh start. This included teenager Issa McNeil, who had been looking after Rena's two children, and with Issa was Anne McFall. Anne, who was also a teenager, had a difficult life in Glasgow and was keen to plant roots somewhere else. The three young women, Fred's wife Rena and her two teenage companions, were expecting a sizable property for all of them to share, especially as they were travelling with two children. However, what they were told by Fred and what they were greeted with was so very far from the truth. They arrived in Bishop's Cleeve in Gloucestershire to find out they would all be sharing a cramped caravan. Fred had found work as an abattoir delivery driver, although on his wages he could barely support his family. Life was incredibly challenging, not to mention the abuse that Rena Costello was still being subjected to. If she was ever to shy away from Fred's advances, the consequences would end in an assault and sexual attack. Eventually, Rena realised there would be no let-up in the abuse she was suffering. So along with Issa, her young friend who had acted as the family's babysitter, they left Fred, moving back to Glasgow in 1966. Fred had threatened his wife one too many times, and she had had enough. Before she left as an act of retaliation, Rena stole some items from Fred's caravan. He decided to report the incident to the police. Rena was arrested and convicted, adding further to a criminal record that would make it harder to be granted custody of her children. Charmaine and Anne-Marie stayed in Fred's care. Anne McFall, who had also travelled from Scotland, 
remained in England. The teenager had slowly fallen in love with Fred. Anne was besotted, and the two began a relationship. She wrote to her mother and described how happy she was. The pair discussed getting married. It appeared to Anne's mother that her daughter and Fred had a future. This was why it was so incredibly perplexing that in the summer of the following year, 1967, when Anne McFall was 18, she vanished. It would not be until 27 years later that the circumstances of her disappearance would be finally understood. It turns out that Anne was pregnant. The reason why exactly Fred West chose to murder the expectant mother of one of his children went with him to his grave. Anne McFall would become the first of Fred West's confirmed victims. During a search in June 1994, police would discover her body in fingerpost field around Kempley on the outskirts of Much Markle, along with the remains of an unborn baby. It was estimated that Anne McFall was seven months into her pregnancy. Anne's body had been cut up, however, not all of her bones were recovered. It has also been reported that the baby was removed from her body. In what could be an attempt to hinder any identification, her fingers were removed. The missing bones were possibly cut off and kept as a trophy or a reminder of the crime. And um, we've learned this morning that there's been a find at Kempley. Yeah. And the police, um, well, the, the suggestion obviously is going to be that this is Anne McFall. I want it to be Anne. Yeah. Really. I mean, Anne, to me, was perfect. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's it gave her, would give her life for me, you know what I mean? Anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was quite prepared to give her life for me. I mean, when you get somebody to that extent in your life, you've got somebody. Completely unaware of Anne McFall's fate, Rena Costello occasionally returned to England to see her children, while Fred West was still in Bishop's Cleeve. Rena even briefly rekindled her relationship with Fred. Unsurprisingly, their reunion did not last long, and Rena again returned to Scotland. It was during 1967 at a Cheltenham bus stop that Fred West would meet the woman that his name would forever be intertwined with for all the wrong reasons. Fred was 27, and although separated, he was still married to Rena Costello. Fred was then living in a caravan site looking after both his daughter, five-year-old Anne-Marie, and Rena's six-year-old daughter, Charmaine. 
Rosemary Letts was then 15. While she did not warm to Fred initially, due to his dishevelled appearance, within a few days after Fred's recurring appearances at the same bus stop, he won her over. She took pleasure from the attention he paid her. He asked her out on a date, and they met in a local pub for drinks. Fred lavished Rose with gifts, a lace dress and a fur coat, but she could not take them home as she still lived with her parents. He promised me the world. He promised me everything. Rose West would later tell a packed courtroom. Fred informed Rose that he was separated from his wife and he had two children. As their relationship progressed, Rose fell pregnant. Her parents tried to have her taken into care as they were worried about what might happen, but when she turned 16, there was nothing they could do. Rose was enamoured. Born in late November 1953, Rosemary Pauline Letts was initially raised in Devon before the family moved to Bishop's Cleeve in Gloucestershire. She was the fifth of seven children. According to her mother, she was a tomboy who enjoyed the company of younger children, buying them sweets with her pocket money. The Letts were seen as a close family. Rose did not receive much of an education. She frequently seemed preoccupied and moody, with her head in the clouds. After she finished school, she found work at a bakery. When Rose was 15, her mother and father parted ways and the separation of her parents coincided with two incidents that occurred in quick succession. Rose claimed she was raped twice. She felt unable to tell either her mother or her father. She moved in with an older sibling, and apart from her father, was joined by the remainder of the family. But after Rose returned home from work one day, she found that her mother had left with the other children. Rose later said that she felt abandoned, and along with the attacks, these events had a devastating effect on her life. She was vulnerable. Now in need of a way to get to work, Rose started using public transport, It was at a bus stop where she met her future husband. Numerous public accounts point to Rose West being raised in a violent household. Electrical engineer Bill Letts struggled with schizophrenia and reportedly took out his frustrations on his children and a wife who was suffering from depression. In some of the more sensational claims, when Rose was a teenager, she would climb into her younger sibling's bed, and while going through puberty, 
for reasons only known to her. Rose often walked around the house without any clothes on. There are varying accounts as to her behaviour during this time, so it is challenging to locate the truth within a great deal of conjecture. When Rose met her husband-to-be, she was a teenager and some 12 years younger than the man she would go on to marry. Like her father, Fred had a dominant personality. Soon after Rose's 16th birthday, she moved in with him after he secured a flat in Cheltenham. By all accounts, Rose would be only too willing to look after Fred's daughter and stepdaughter. Now in his company more frequently, Rose noticed there were two sides to Fred West. He would run hot and cold. Sometimes he could not be more attentive, playing with the children and helping with the chores. But he also could show a violent side that his first wife, Rena, was all too familiar with. In 1970, Fred Rose and the children moved to a two-storey semi-detached property on Midland Road in Gloucester. Rose was pregnant with her first child. Heather Ann West would be born in October of that year. She was the last of Fred and Rose West's known victims. Life would be challenging enough for a young mother who was not even an adult, raising three children with a man who was abusive. But things would become even more complicated after only three months, when Fred was sent to prison, being charged with theft and tax evasion. He stole some car tyres, and a vehicle tax disc he used was out of date he would spend six months behind bars. With Fred temporarily out of the picture, Rose began to fly into violent rages. Charmaine would get upset and continually spoke of how she wanted to move back in with her biological mother, Rena. Rose disliked Charmaine's rebellious streak. The abuse increased and the young Rose became even more enraged, as Charmaine refused to shed a tear even when she was subjected to assault after assault. Rose became incensed. Fred West was due to be released towards the end of June 1971. Charmaine was alive at the start of June as she was pictured in a school photograph However, by the end of the following month, the faculty were told she would not be returning. The eight-year-old seemed to have vanished off the face of the earth. No one knew precisely when. It could have been the middle of June onwards, or possibly after this point at the start of July. Whenever questions were asked about Charmaine's whereabouts... Rose said that Fred's stepdaughter had left and moved back in with her mother in Scotland. But this could not be further from the truth. 
Either Rose had murdered Charmaine while Fred was in prison, or they both played a part when he got out at the end of the month. The forensic odontologist who examined the evidence felt it was the former due to the condition of the remains. Based on the forensic examination, the body appeared to have been stored around some coal, possibly a coal bunker. This is where her body would stay until it was buried under the window of the kitchen at 25 Midland Road. It would be that same year that demanding custody of her daughters, Rena Costello arrived at Midland Road. However, she would never come home. Fred West was willing to do anything to hide what he and his wife had done. Rena's remains would be found in Letterbox Field a short distance from the location where Anne McFall's body was buried. A red boomerang was found next to her, along with a child's toy. Fred West was never divorced, but he tied the knot with Rose in January 1972. Superficially, Fred was seen by those on the outside as someone who applied themselves in the building trade to provide for his family who he loved dearly. He found employment at a concrete works and carried out odd jobs at a centre that supported members of the community with learning difficulties. But behind closed doors, few knew of what Fred and his wife really got up to. In spite of her protest to the contrary, Rose West made money through sex work. Not every person she slept with paid, however. The couple had an open relationship, and Fred enjoyed watching Rose being intimate with other men and women. He also made sure that when she was advertising her services in adult magazines, she specifically asked for black men. This was something that Fred was most insistent on. And it was just fucking crazy for him to say that I couldn't choose another man when he was lying and all fucking up for me. And I wasn't even allowed to choose it. I told you, I'm not. It wouldn't be so bad if I liked the people I was sat in the fucking pub with for, you know, four hours or every week, you know. But I had to go out with this bloke I didn't like. I climbed into his bed and made love all night and come on in the morning. I, I lived in a world of my own on it. For a reason. Because when I went into work and places like that, I mean, half the blokes had shagged my wife. And I knew they had. She'd either fuck off with somebody else and be fucked in the car park right by the side of me with half the pub knowing, or fucking say something in front of, you know, get loose head with me because I was saying, look, fuck you with me, like, fucking stay here. While Fred was abusive and had influence over a great deal of what happened in the home, Rose was no pushover. There was one area of their relationship where she was the one in charge. The family's finances. Whenever Fred was paid a salary, 
the money went straight to Rose, who ensured that the bills were paid and she kept a roof over their heads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It was not long before Fred and Rose West wanted to move to a larger property. This was when they found the location that would forever be remembered in the history books. 25 Cromwell Street. To his neighbours, Fred appeared to be cheerful. He enjoyed numerous DIY projects that involved a great deal of concrete a material he used to bury his secrets. In closed circles, the property was a place where lots of alcohol was consumed and sex parties were held. The couple had a fascination with pornography, specifically sexual sadism. Some they watched, some they produced themselves. It is unlikely the attendees at the West's parties truly knew what Fred West and his wife were capable of. Anne-Marie, Fred's daughter from his first marriage, 
was eight years old when she was taken down to the cellar. There she was bound and raped by Fred as her stepmother watched. This was the first in a countless number of sex attacks on children, with Anne-Marie told that if she said anything, she would be beaten further. The attacks involved saucepans, belts, brooms, whatever was to hand. She was even kicked in the face by Rose, who was wearing a pair of steel toe-cap boots. That will teach you to try and be so cocky, Rose told her stepdaughter. Over the years, incest and brutal attacks seemed commonplace to the children. Still, the rapes and sexual assaults were not just directed at them. A nanny the couple had employed during the early 70s had been out and accepted a lift from the pair. At 17, Caroline Owens was almost out of her teens. During the autumn of 1972, looking for a lift between Cinderford, where she lived, and Tewkesbury, where her boyfriend lived, she was picked up by Fred and Rose West. Caroline was not afraid to hitchhike and had been travelling this way since the summer. When she got in the car of a seemingly generous couple, she was asked questions about who she was and what she was doing. Eventually, the subject turned to whether or not she would be interested in being a nanny for what was then their four children. Caroline accepted the offer. She spent time at Cromwell Street on a salary of £3 a week and enjoyed socialising at the numerous parties held there. However, after a few weeks, Rose began to make advances towards Caroline and she felt uncomfortable. Rose continually asked Caroline about her sex life. Rose often stroked Caroline's hair and even entered the bathroom unannounced when Caroline was in the bath. Things became more uncomfortable when Fred suggested to Caroline that her boyfriend should stay over. They could even use the West's bed. Fred said that if she ever ended up pregnant, he knew what to do and could, quote, sort her out. He suggested that he knew how to terminate a pregnancy. Caroline felt uneasy and no longer wanted to stay at the address, so she moved out. A short time later, on December 6, 1972, she was spotted by Fred and Rose when they were out driving. Caroline was standing outside a pub in Shrewsbury after being out with her boyfriend. The husband and wife asked if Caroline needed a lift home. She accepted, unaware of the fate that awaited her. On the journey, Fred veered off course and in the darkness drove towards an isolated field in Gloucestershire. Rose was in the back seat and put her arm around Caroline's neck. 
She then tried to kiss Caroline on the mouth and touch her breasts. Fred pulled over and stared at Caroline, but addressed Rose, asking, What are her tits like? Caroline was struck repeatedly in the face and head by Fred. When she came to, she was being bound and gagged and was then sexually assaulted. Caroline was driven to Cromwell Street at Knife Point. She was raped and her life was threatened, but it was only when Caroline managed to convince her abductors that she would return to the property to again work as their nanny, they agreed to let her go. When she arrived at her mother's, the police were called. Arrests were made, but due to an impending court case and the understandable trauma of having to recount everything that she went through, Caroline could not bring herself to testify. Rather than spending any time behind bars, instead Fred and Rose West were ordered to pay a small fine for pleading guilty to two charges of indecent assault and actual bodily harm in January 1973. A magistrate told Fred that he did not think sending him to prison would do any good. Caroline Owens had lived to report what had happened and would later testify at Rose West's trial. However then, Fred and Rose West were determined to forever silence any of their future victims so they could not speak of the horrors they endured. It appeared to be a blueprint for the West's future attacks. Linda Carol Goff was 19. She became friends with a lodger, Benjamin Staniland, who stayed at 25 Cromwell Street. Fred West had since converted the property into a number of bedsits, where numerous guests would stay. During spring of 1973, Linda, who was working as a seamstress, left home and moved into the property. She was described by her mother as cheerful, happy, friendly. Before she moved out, she left her parents a note which read, Dear Mum and Dad, please don't worry about me. I've found a flat. I'll come and see you sometime. Love, Lynn. It was soon after she disappeared. Her mother arrived at the property on Cromwell Street, curious as to what happened to her daughter. Rose and her husband answered the door and said Linda had decided to move to Western Supermare. Fred and Rose stated that Linda was asked to leave as she had struck one of the West's children. This was something that the other lodgers had also been told. Linda's mother was surprised, as the woman who stood before her wore both a pair of Linda's slippers and a cardigan 
that her daughter had owned. She was told that Linda had left them behind. The truth is Linda Goff was murdered by Fred and Rose West. That April, she was bound and tortured before her body was cut into pieces and hidden beneath the bathroom. When her bones were discovered, a mask made of adhesive tape was found wrapped around her jaw. Her disappearance was reported to the police, and the Salvation Army were informed in the hope someone might have seen her. Only seven months later, Fred and Rose West took another life. Fifteen-year-old Carol Ann Cooper was living in Pines Children's Home in Worcester. Carol was last seen getting on a bus in the Warnden area of Worcestershire to travel back to her grandmother's home. Dressed in a beige bomber jacket, jumper, beige trousers and black shoes, she spent part of the day in Warnden watching a film at the cinema with her friends. Around 9.30pm on the evening of Saturday, November 10th, 1973, she waved goodbye to her boyfriend. How exactly she came to be in the company of Fred and Rose West is something no one but the killers know. Perhaps they offered her a lift for the final part of her journey. Or maybe she was abducted. No one, not even the lodgers staying there, know what happened at Cromwell Street, but it has been suggested Caroline Cooper was restrained with brown sticky tape and cord. Next to a piece of clothesline, Caroline Cooper's remains were buried in the cellar of 25 Cromwell Street. At the beginning of January 1974, Fred West was admitted to the emergency room of Gloucester Royal Infirmary to treat a deep laceration to his hand. Although explained away as just an accident, it is believed that Fred obtained the cut when he was dismembering the body of the next victim who had been abducted a week earlier. Lucy Catherine Partington was 21. The student who was studying in Exeter came home over the Christmas period to visit her family. She travelled to Cheltenham to see a friend. In the final days of December 1973, alone and hoping to catch a bus near the A435, she was likely either given a lift by Fred and Rose or abducted at the bus stop where she had been waiting. Fred and Rose were looking for potential victims and by chance crossed Lucy's path. It had been six weeks since the murder of the last victim, Carol Ann Cooper. Prosecutors believe that Lucy could have been kept alive for around a week 
during which time she was restrained, attacked and raped before her life was ended. Her naked body was found dismembered in the cellar. A number of bones were missing along with her fingers and toes. Based on the evidence found in the burial site, it looked as though she was bound and gagged with rope and sticky tape, the same method used in the previous crimes. What was described as a mask of brown tape was found next to Lucy Partington's body, plus a black-handled knife. The prosecutor at Rose West's trial said this was the very knife Fred West cut himself with. After Lucy Partington's murder, it would be around four months before Fred and Rose West would strike again. Therese Siegenthaler was a sociology student from Switzerland. Like Lucy, Therese was also 21 years old. Over the Easter holiday of 1974, she planned to visit a friend in Ireland and was hitchhiking from South London. On her way there, she must have met Fred and Rose West and likely accepted their offer of a lift. Both of Therese's parents were dead, but after her disappearance, Therese's brother made several trips to England to look for her. Like many of the other victims, the details are sparse, although her dismembered body was found buried in the cellar of 25 Cromwell Street. From the limited evidence that could be retrieved around the remains, it was concluded that she was gagged before her death. A scarf was tied around her head. Six months later, Shirley Hubbard must have also crossed paths with Fred and Rose West when she was travelling. She was only 15. Shirley had been placed in the foster system when she was younger, after her parents split up. In November 1974, following a work experience placement, the schoolgirl planned to travel to Droitwich, where she stayed with her carers. She would never arrive. Evidence unearthed with her body, found roughly 20 years later, suggested she was tortured. How long she was alive during this period was difficult to say, although thick pieces of sticky tape had been wrapped around her head about a dozen times from eye level to her chin, creating a mask through which she could neither speak, hear or breathe. Her air supply had all but been cut off if not for a small piece of tubing pushed up her nose. Her body was found in the cellar of 25 Cromwell Street. The prosecutor at Rose West's trial inferred death was a blessing, 
in these circumstances. Another attack and murder would occur six months after Shirley Hubbard's abduction, but it was not someone that Fred and Rose West were unfamiliar with and had picked up off the street. 18-year-old Juanita Mott had stayed in one of the bedsits at Cromwell Street when she was a teenager, although she had since moved out. Her family life had not been easy, as with some of the other victims before her. Juanita had found a place to stay in the town of Newant, just over ten miles from Gloucester. She was working in a bottle factory. Juanita was hitchhiking the journey from her home in Newant. She wanted to travel to Gloucester one day in April 1975. Around five years after she disappeared, Juanita's sister Belinda had friends who stayed at 25 Cromwell Street, so she was regularly at the property. This meant that on these occasions Belinda was only metres away from Juanita's body. Juanita's remains discovered in the cellar of 25 Cromwell Street indicated that she too was tortured before her death. Some plastic clothesline was found with her bones, along with some socks, a bra, tights, and underwear wrapped around her skull. Five killings had occurred over the course of 18 months, and Juanita was the last for several years. Fred and Rose West were looking for targets who came from broken homes. They often assumed that the victims would have no one looking for them if they vanished. Over three years would pass between the murder of Juanita Mott and the next victim. During this time, Rose West continued making money through sex work and still advertised her services in magazines, occasionally submitting pictures of herself topless. Fred took great pleasure in watching his wife have sex through peepholes concealed in the walls of their home. When Rose West travelled to other properties to engage in sex work, Fred often asked for a graphic account of what happened when she returned. One possible reason why there was a gap of several years between the murders was the appearance of Shirley Ann Robinson. Shirley had a difficult life. Her parents parted ways when she was three, which led to her moving between parents. Perhaps being so unsettled caused her to misbehave, and it was not long before she was in trouble with the law. Shirley was taken into care, and then spent time in a secure facility before she turned 16. She found work as a maid, then she moved into one of the rooms at the West's home. 
the precise date Shirley turned to sex work is unknown. Although public accounts suggest her landlady and landlord had some part to play. Over time, Fred grew closer with Shirley until this led to her becoming pregnant with Fred's child. This situation undoubtedly caused friction between Fred and Rose, as during some small social gatherings, Fred freely admitted that he had both a wife and a lover. As time wore on, Rose grew more and more resentful and jealous as Fred's taunts increased. He became spiteful. He told Rose that the young Shirley would be his next wife and regularly rubbed her pregnant belly in Rose's presence. Rose had only just given birth to a baby herself in December 1977. Shirley Ann Robinson's was due in June 1978. Becoming unnerved by the behaviour of her lover and Fred's wife, Shirley felt more comfortable sleeping in the room of another lodger. But two months before the baby was due, the 18-year-old disappeared. Fred could have felt pressure from his wife to do something about his lover's pregnancy, or Rose could have murdered Shirley as she was jealous. There is only speculation. Shirley Ann Robinson's body was found a decade and a half later close to the back door under the patio, along with her unborn baby. Experts found no evidence that she was tortured or subjected to a sexual attack, like some of the victims before. However, a section of her skeleton was missing, a common theme running throughout the disposal of the remains. Shirley Ann Robinson's murder was not thought to be committed out of a sadistic desire, but in a moment of anger. Over the subsequent years, Rose West had been provided with an area of the house which was dubbed Rose's Room. The youngsters knew to stay away from that part of the home when a red light outside was illuminated. The abuse and horrors against the children also showed no signs of abating. Anne-Marie, who had been subjected to a lifetime of sexual attacks became pregnant at the end of 1979, although the pregnancy was terminated at the start of the following year. She felt she had nowhere left to turn and fled as soon as she turned 16. Unbeknownst to her, the bodies of Anne-Marie's mother, Rena, and half-sister, Charmaine, were hidden by her father a man that had been abusing her since she was eight years old. With Anne-Marie no longer around for Fred and his wife to abuse, their attention turned to Heather West.
15 months would pass between the murder of Shirley Ann Robinson and the mysterious disappearance of someone else that often stayed at Cromwell Street. Alison Chambers was 17 when she was last seen. Alison's parents separated when she was young. After moving to her father's, then her mother's, she was taken into the care of social services in Swansea. She continually ran away, so she was sent to an approved school in Gloucestershire. Alison had links to Cromwell Street as some of her friends had stayed there. She found work in a youth training scheme for a firm of solicitors and had a key to the front door of 25 Cromwell Street. Alison wanted nothing more than a quiet life after the turmoil in her early years. Fred and Rose told her that they were the owners of a farm where she was welcome to live. She could not believe her luck. A life away in the country, somewhere more peaceful. It sounded like a dream. Alison again fled from Jordan's Brook House where she was staying and travelled to Cromwell Street. She was under the impression that she would then be travelling on to her new home. Alison was somewhat naive for her age. She was easily convinced. But Alison had been deceived. The Wests did not own a farmhouse. From what investigators could piece together from the remains in the cellar of Cromwell Street... Alison was gagged with a large belt. Some of her bones, including her kneecaps, were never recovered. A letter was posted to her family from Northamptonshire, although her mother had no idea what Alison was doing there. It turns out Fred and Rose had obtained a letter Alison had written to her mother that she had never sent. The Wests made the four-hour round trip to distance themselves from the teenager's disappearance. From August 1979, when it was believed Alison Chambers was murdered, there was not a confirmed killing until 1987 although it remains to be seen if this is true. Throughout the 1980s, Heather West faced a living nightmare, endlessly beaten and sexually attacked by her father and mother. Some lodgers and neighbours heard the screams but did not report anything to the police. Unsurprisingly, Heather was shy and nervous of other people. Fred and Rose chose to attack their daughter in places that would be concealed by her clothing. She never undressed, not least for a shower, after her sports lessons at school. She did not want to reveal the heavy bruises and welts that marked her body. 
when she turned 16 in 1987, that the West was desperate to leave and sought employment away from her family in Devon at a holiday camp. Concurrently, her brother Stephen was helping his father dig a large hole in the garden where they planned to construct a fish pond. At the end of spring, Heather discovered her job application was rejected. She was distraught. Around this time, an argument erupted with her parents. Heather was never seen again, and the hole that had been dug in the garden for a fish pond was mysteriously filled in. What Heather experienced in her final hours can only be gleaned from the state of her remains when her body was found in February 1994. No clothing covered her bones, and a cord was found near her remains. It was impossible to tell whether it was Fred or Rose that ended their daughter's life. The rest of the family were none the wiser, as Heather's parents told the children that following a mix-up, Heather had in fact been accepted for the role she had applied for. She was on her way to the holiday camp where she would be working. This was, however, a lie. Heather was much closer to home. I looked around everywhere trying to find a knife for summer. I mean, I looked at the axe... I had a chop axe, chop, and I mean, I could, there's no way I could touch it to touch her with it. Not that face or with anything like that. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. So I went, I, I looked up and I see this knife sticking out. It got like two prongs on the end, two sharp points comes out on the end of it, and then it got big serrated edges all along it. You saw blocks of ice with And I got that, and, and I tried it with the big ones first, and and it, it was terrible, man. It was, I, I'm sweating, I'm, I'm just about everything going on at this time. So I finally managed to do, do it, to take her head off, and then her legs. And that was oof, unbearable. I mean, I can hear that now in my sleep. I wake up very often screaming when I can hear that, that going. As the years passed, on the rare occasion when her name was mentioned, the children were told that Heather had moved to Wales to live with a partner before she was seen in Birmingham and Bristol. Fred turned his hand to carry out numerous DIY projects at the family home, including the garden and the cellar. With help from unsuspecting friends, Over the decades, he spread more concrete over the patio and the cellar floor. The family would spend several summers having family gatherings or friends over for a barbecue who were utterly unaware of what lay beneath their feet. Heather's photos were gradually removed from the picture frames throughout the home and Fred and Rose made a conscious effort to never bring up their daughter's name in conversation. With Heather no longer around, 
Fred's desire to sexually abuse the other children in his care created a chain reaction that brought him to the attention of the police and gave detectives cause to look further into the missing people that had orbited his life. Like the lack of information about what happened to the victims in their final days and hours, the exact extent of Rose West's involvement was a mystery, a puzzle that could only be pieced together by a jury. Rose rang me at work in the mid- uh, midday, middle of the day, um, and said the police were digging the garden up. Come home quick. So anyway, I got home. Anyway, he's a savage come, and um, I went down to the police station. I mean, I had nothing to bloody hide. Yeah, this is where we got hell of a problem. We've got to get it all out, uh, right. sort, it, sort it out. Yeah. Because I have mixed it up deliberately for the police. So anyway, I got to grips with it after a while. And the first thing that came into my mind was, I'm going to have to take this and sort it out, which I did. All the messes Rose got herself into, I took the looking rap for him and helped him out of it. So anyway, I said, Look, you'll have to tell me exactly what happened. I said, what, Charmaine? I said, hang on a fucking minute, where's Charmaine? She said, um, Charmaine's buried in the, in the coal cellar in Midland Road. Yeah, she's buried in the corner, she said. I said, she's not fucking cut up. I mean, you haven't cut a fucking child up, for God's sake. You know, I mean, that was the feeling that was coming to me. Oh, no, she said. Oh, no, she's not cut up, she said. She's fully clothed, wrapped in blankets and... Rose lied to me, which hurt me as well, about Charmaine. She said that... that Charmaine was an accident or something. And I said... Well, she was. She didn't cut her up. And she's, oh, no, no, I wouldn't. No, no, nothing like that. She said, uh, she's fully clothed, and I wrapped her up in a blanket and buried her. And that's what I said. So was the police? But it, that wasn't it at all when the police found her. She was naked, and, and whether she'd been cut up, I don't know. This is the end of episode four. You can hear the final part on the case of Fred and Rose West next week. And please make sure to follow They Walk Among Us on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Holly Henderson, and everyone who supports us through Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.